I want to thank Foamcast Radio for supporting the show. Foamcast Radio is a weekly podcast. It's all about Nerf blasters and related blaster toys. You can subscribe to Foamcast Radio on your podcast app or visit foamcastradio.com. Hey, welcome to a new episode of the Superpowered Fancast. This is Darren. This is episode 52, the first episode of the new year. It is 2020. So we've got a new show, a new episode, and uh, more new episodes coming. And this first new episode I'm really excited about because I've got a, a great interview, which um, I'm going to take up the, the bulk of the episode now. The next episode, we're going to talk about like all the uh, all the new things that we're looking forward to in the geek world. And in 2020, I am definitely want to talk about uh, Lost in Space and The Witcher and uh, upcoming Star Trek Picard. But this episode uh, is continues on one of the things that I've really enjoyed, which is talking to uh, creators, uh, comic book creators, especially about uh, the genre, about their writing, about the things they love about character and story and how they develop them. So this episode, I had a, a, a great interview with writer, artist and instructor Jim Zub. And uh, Jim Zub is uh, is a writer for Marvel Comics, but he also he writes for uh, IDW. He's, he's written for for many uh, publications, both creator owned and established characters. Um, currently, he is writing one of my one of my favorite comics, which is Black Panther and the Agents of Wakanda. Uh, he's also writing uh, Conan Serpent War. He's going to be taking over uh, the Conan Monthly series soon, and he also has uh, he also writes uh, uh, Dungeons and Dra- Dragons like. Uh, the new the young adventurers guides he also has uh, dungeons and dragons infernal tides which he's writing for uh, idw publishing and um i really just kind of want to go right into it because we talked we had a, a great conversation about a lot of great uh topics uh especially like his journey in comics what he loves about the genre what he loves about writing what he loves about the characters and it, a lot of what he talks about uh, is about communication. And if you go to his website, if you go to jimzub.com, he has some amazing tutorials for anyone who's thinking about getting into uh, getting into comics. Where just on his site itself, it's almost like a series of TED talks where he just talks about like the like everything from brainstorming idea to writing dialogue, to pitching the story, to finding an artist, things like that. So it's it's a great resource for uh, for writers or, or artists or people who want to get into uh, the industry. So without uh, further ado, uh, this is me talking to Jim Zub. Okay. Um, well, uh, Jim Zub, thank you for uh, for being on the Superpowered Fancast. I'm uh, Again, just to to let you know, we we kind of talked before this, um, so I'm gonna just letting everybody know I'm gonna fanboy a lot, so <laughs> gonna have to forgive me. Like I'm I'm a I'm a black fan of a Black Panther fanatic, and I love reading 
love all of the, the Black Panther stories. I'm also a Conan fanatic and a D&D fan. So we've got like, it's like a trifecta. Oh of, man, we have got you uh, from th- three different directions. You're fanning out. That's awesome. Well, exactly. thank you. So, exactly. <laughs> so it's like a trifecta of, of, of writing of things that I'm just completely, totally into. So uh, I'm going <laughs> to, so there's I, I, a part of me that doesn't know where to begin. So I'm just kind of just going to just drop right into it. No problem. So, all right, so the first thing I, I wanted to ask you about is uh, uh, is about Conan, mm-hmm. and because I'm I'm looking through just your just your list of work and um, uh, what you've written, especially what you're writing currently, which is uh, Serpent War. So I wanted yeah. to to know, and and again, just uh, looking at like your body of work, you do a lot of like sword and sorcery fantasy uh, writing. So. So what is it about uh, Howard's creation, uh, Conan, uh, do you think um, has the staying power with readers? Like, what about Conan endures uh, oh, uh, after so long? That's a good question. You know, I think that a lot of the stuff that we think of in terms of sword and sorcery, I know Lord of the Rings and and Tolkien gets, a you know, a, a lot of credit for that. But I think Howard kind of set the pace for a lot of what I and many other people think of as, as sword and sorcery and fantasy. Um, I've always really loved the the stories. I loved, you know, Howard's writing and then the comics, of course, you know, the Roy Thomas uh, mm-hmm. stuff in particular. But I, I think that there's something very, like a lot of very popular characters in media, whether that's Batman or Spider-Man or, or, you know, Wonder Woman or these larger than life characters, they have a very simple core and I think Conan, for the most part, has a very simple core. You know, the theme of Conan the Barbarian, if you want to say, you know, different stories have different kind of things happening. But on the whole, you know, Howard was exploring this idea of kind of civility versus, you know, barbarism. Mm-hmm. Like, what is it to be civilized or what is it to to be a survivor in a world that doesn't necessarily respect, you know, the rules and laws of man or anything like that. And so um, that simplicity doesn't mean that the stories can't be complex, doesn't mean that they can't be emotional or intensive. If anything, it opens us up to all kinds of different possibilities. At its core, you know, Conan is about a self-made, like a survivor, a character that um, starts from relatively humble beginnings and then builds literally, you know, like wins a crown by his own hand. Mm-hmm. But the journey through that is what's so fascinating. The number of roles that he takes on in order to survive, whether that's as a mercenary or an assassin or a bodyguard or a, you know, a thief yeah. or a pirate or all these different things that he does in, in service to survival and his own sort of desires to explore and to see new places. And so I think that because of his simplicity of purpose and his, that doesn't mean he's a, he's a, a simple character. Batman's a very complex, you know, can be a very complex mm-hmm. character, but at its core, it's a very simple idea, you know? And I think that holds true with Conan as well. And the world that he is a part of the Hyborian age is, um, this exaggerated and, and stretched and, and blown out version of our ancient world, but with, mm-hmm. you know, different pieces kind of reconfigured just enough that you don't never quite know for sure what you're going to get. And so the, the, it, it feels like a tapestry that you can really look deeper and deeper at in terms of possibilities and almost anything within that sword and sorcery milieu can kind of fit 
within it somewhere. You know what I mean? The types of um, landscapes he can traverse, the types of foes that he can come up against. There are certain aspects that come up again and again, whether it's, you know, animalistic kind of beings or otherworldly kind of threats or demonic kind of elements. But there's enough flexibility there that you can bring new kind of bits into it and, and push them out into interesting corridors. And so I find, um, yeah, it's just a really nice, uh, uh, sandbox to play in, honestly, and kind of surreal for me, honestly, because I, I grew up reading the books and reading the comics and, and realizing that this character was so, important to so many people and now having the chance to contribute, you know, I would love to have the chance to do uh, a, you know, a long run on the character and add some cool things and bring some new stories into the fold while at the same time trying to be as respectful as possible about the, the traits and the elements that have made, you know, Conan, the barbarian Conan, the destroyer Conan, the slayer Conan, like all these different things. So, um, so valuable in terms of literature. Oh, absolutely, and that's that's one of the things that I that I've been enjoying about because I was going to ask you like what it kind of uh, attracted you to writing a new story for him. But one of the things I've always found enduring about the character is just he's like even like no matter where he is, like especially now, just reading uh, his new adventures uh, in Marvel. No, no matter where he is in in time or space, he's uncompromising kind of in who he is right so it's all so it's fun to kind of see him in those situations where he's where he is who he is and dealing with other characters like just him and moon knight just (laughs) is is as is incredibly fun to me and it's and even uh even like the other stories i've seen him in with just just him and dr doom and and Mm -hmm. uh, dr strange like just his uncompromising nature and how he could so easily be seen as like a savage kind of throwback, but even they kind of, uh, they see things in him that they can respect. There's an honesty to, to Conan. Conan will never pretend to be something that he's not. Do you know what I mean? Right. And he tells, and, and I think there's something very, it, it is almost like a, like your kind of classic, whether it's samurai or cowboy, you know, it's that kind of character who has a very distinct um, identity and carries that through from story to story. That's enjoyable. You know, in his more youthful days, he's a bit more impetuous and impatient. And in his Mm -hmm. later days, he's a little more careful and obviously, you know, kind of world weary, but that along that journey, there's so many different um, cool things that are possible. And he's a bit of a, you know, we we see empowering elements of people we would like to be in him. You know, yeah. his confidence, his uncompromising nature, his ability to endure, you know, is very compelling as a as a protagonist. And so that's why I think um, I, I, it's really enjoyable to put him up against threats that you're not sure how he's going to react or put him in exactly like what you said, you know, environments where we want to see Conan's response to it almost as much as we want to see where the conflict goes right exactly i kind of like you want to see how uh, like conan will you know deal with a character like dr doom or a character Mm -hmm. like moon knight like you want to you want to see that that uh i don't know if dichotomy is the right word but you want to kind of you kind of want to see that that parallel 
Yeah, and, I think, and I think it's also really important that you know Marvel's got Savage Avengers, and we did stuff like the Avengers No Road Home, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, event series, but that the Conan the Barbarian series stays solidly focused on the Hyborian Age, and that is the place where you go for sort of those pure howard-esque adventures and then these other things that are happening stuff like serpent war that's the place where we can get a bit more experimental and we can try stuff out and put the character through the paces in in different ways or touching upon other elements of things like the marvel universe and i think that's cool just as long as we don't lose that core you know right so is that kind of why you want serpent war to be uh, kind of like a standalone story, like just the, there was what, four issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just kind of want to just tell that story from start to finish. And that like kind of before you just uh, go to, before you go to just Conan's stories uh, by himself. Well, what's interesting. I mean, I didn't anticipate that serpent. I, I hadn't planned to take over Conan, the barbarian. What had happened was I wish I could say, man, yeah, this is all part of my grand plan. Um, right. But the industry doesn't work like that. So uh, what happened was, you know, Marvel got the rights to Conan back last, well, I guess two years now. We're in 2020. Uh, In 2018, they got the rights back, but it wasn't announced till later in the year. But I knew quite a bit earlier when we were planning out um, the Avengers event that would eventually be called No Road Home. Mm -hmm. Tom Brevoort, who was the managing editor on that asked us if we could incorporate Conan. I had the most kind of uh, love for the character and background. I'd written him previously in a Conan Red Sonja Mm -hmm. team up with Gail Simone, um, illustrated by the amazing Dan Panosian. And um, so I was gung-ho to, to, you know, and selfishly wanted as much of that Conan as possible. (laughs) And it went over well. The people at Conan Properties were really appreciative and they, they liked what I was doing there. And I thought, okay, that's my only other chance I'm going to get to write Conan. Um, the editor who took over the main sort of monthly Conan books, which was Savage Sword and the uh, regular Conan the Barbarian series, that's mm-hmm. Mark Besso. We've worked together before at Marvel. So I reached out to him and said, hey, I know Savage Sword is going to have rotating creative teams. Can I pitch a story at you? And he said, you know, go for it. I pitched this idea for a three-part story that would appear in Savage Sword of Conan, and it got moved up on the schedule because everyone was really happy with it. It was called Conan the Gambler. Mm-hmm. And that kind of secure, that was my first time to write the character really solo. Um, I loved it. I had an absolute blast. Uh, Pat Zerker drew the hell out of it. Uh, it was a really fun, and that, as far as I knew, that was my chance to make a statement like, this is what I think a classic Conan story is. And this mm-hmm. is what I feel the character, how they sort of work best, you know? Um, thankfully readers agreed and the Conan properties people were super happy with it. And that started the conversation that would become serpent war. So they asked me if I had interest in other Robert E. Howard characters and could think of a way to bring some of them together into an event. And so I dug deep into the canon and read up a storm. And, um, one of the characters that came up in conversations was this really interesting character named James Allison, who's quite obscure. Um, Mm -hmm. there's only two complete James Allison stories in the Robert E. Howard canon. The rest of it's all just fragments. Yeah. But he's one of the first, I, I don't know if he is the first, but he's certainly one of the oldest meta narrative characters I've ever seen in fiction. You know, um, Robert E. Howard was a, a gentleman who lived in Cross Plain, Texas in the 30s, who had this, you know, intense, uh, obsessive 
need to to write these stories. And James Allison is a a writer living in they just say rural Texas in the right. 1930s, <laughs> who's wasting away after an injury in a bed, dying, and he has these lucid nightmare kind of dreams of his past lives. And he sees himself in these kind of Hyborian esque age kind of adventures, but also in ancient Rome and in, you know, the Viking plains and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, man, this is a really cool character. And this could become the connective tissue yeah. to make a story that web of, of lives that James Allison has lived. That's a very, you know, potent thing we could use um, to build a story around. And that became sort of the bedrock of what is now Serpent War. And so trying to use what's there and and find that kind of fertile ground to, to grow stuff from, uh, I think is really important. And it, um, it means that Serpent War is like I said, you said, you know, um, a self-contained story that kind of brings some of these characters that people may not have known very much about into a bit more of a visible context mm -hmm. while also hopefully being a, you know, a really strong um, self-contained thing on its own merits. All right. So, I mean, so then are there any uh, plans to kind of have those characters make their way into the Marvel universe uh, a little bit? Just because well, they're going to be doing, so dark Agnes has a mini series that's mm -hmm. being written by Becky Cloonan. That's starting up after serpent war finishes. Mm -hmm. And hopefully if there's enough interest, I'm hoping they'll do the same with, you know, Solomon Kane as well. Yeah. So that would be very cool to see, honestly. Um, and really heartwarming to me. Cause you know, we've the whole team put our all into that story, but what happened was I sent in serpent war the Conan properties people responded extremely well. And what I didn't know was happening behind the scenes was that Jason was actually wrapping up his run on Conan, the barbarian, the monthly series. Right. And so after I had done serpent war, um, they looked and said, Jim really knows the material. He's got a lot of passion for it. You know, do you want to take over the flagship monthly series? And it was obviously, you know, something I dreamed about. Um, it's a real bucket list project for me. And so I said yes and uh, immediately got completely wigged out because, you know, as much as you say you want these dream projects and these dream characters, someone actually handing you one of them and you realize you've got to deliver. Like <laughs> it's yeah. no longer about daydreaming. Well, what would I do if now it's like we've got to deliver the, the goods. We've got to make this thing work, you know, yeah. and and make it as exciting and engaging as possible. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, like kind of how, I, just because I, I, I don't know if I've, I, I've, even with other conversations, I don't know if I've ever asked this question before, but it's always been, but it has been something that's been interesting. Like, what is that just initial kind of personal feel when they go, you know what? Yes. And that we want to do, right. we want to tell your story or we want you I to think, tell I mean, story. it's always a mixture of incredible excitement with a little bit of stage fright, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So there's that, it's, it's like this is why you do this because you want to build up these stories that mean something to you and convince the powers that be that you're the right person for the job. And then you finally get the chance to do that. And there's always that, you know, stomach clenching moment of, Oh boy, now you've done it. You know, like mm -hmm. this is, this is what it's all about. And you get over it just like any other kind of, I think fear. Um, and it's important that you're nervous. It's important that it means something to you. If you're just, you know, crapping it out or if you're just 
mindlessly going through the motions, then, you know, that never, that's never a good look. That's never a good feeling. You right. know what I mean? And I think the readers can sense that if they sense that you're just churning something out, there's a lifelessness to the final product, you know? Right. And even, and just kind of like on a, on a process kind of question about that is just, just again, looking through like everything you've written just last year, like you've written yeah. so many kind of last year was bug nuts. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say you've written so many different types of stories, like the uh, mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons, the Young Adventurers Guide, just co-writing that, and uh, Stone Star and Secret Warps and mm-hmm. uh, Savage Sword, Baldur's Gate. Like, do you like when you're taking on a different project? Do you have to get into a different kind of mindset for each uh, for each thing you're writing, or is it just like, hey, I'm kind of in a fantasy world right now, so I can I can write a Dungeons and Dragons, and then I can. Right after that, I can write a Conan and then I can write an, a D&D Young Adventures guide. Like I, I think it's like you you kind of get yourself psyched up for it. I do a lot of research on any project I'm going to do. Even on creator-owned stuff, I want to sort of fill my head with ideas and make sure that I have solidly in place a vision for what I'm trying to to make something, you know? And so in the Marvel universe, it's, it's easy to do research because there's so much material to draw upon. So you can read old stories, you can read seminal stories of these characters and, and get a feel for when they work best or what the traits are that seem to exemplify them. And so Mm -hmm. it's a different kind of reading. When you read for fun, you're just purely entertaining yourself. When I read for research, I literally have like a little pad of paper and I'm giving myself quick notes, whether that's writing down names and locations and secondary characters and little bits of plot or questions that I have as I'm reading that I'm curious to see if they're answered later on. Or sometimes I'm writing a particular nice bit of dialogue or, or a bit of narrative that I feel like exemplifies something about the character. Or I'm writing traits that I see in the character how I would describe them in as few words as possible so that when I need to refer back to it, even characters, I think I know, I want to get that really firmly in mind. I want to know at the forefront what, how I see them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so it's a way to, for characters I haven't read very much or, or never written before. It's a way to kind of get myself in the headspace to think about characterization to think about personality it's a form of role-playing just like you know Dungeons and dragons or anything else and mm-hmm. so it's like an actor you know you you are i'm acting through these characters in these stories i'm imagining what their goals are and what would drive them in particular scenes or situations and so even if i know kind of where the plot is having a feel for how that character would respond honestly to what's happening to them, I think enriches the story as much as possible, you know? And when something's not working, it's usually for that reason that I'm trying to force them to do something and it doesn't feel justified yet. Like I didn't build it properly. You know what I mean? Right. So is there, so along those lines, is there kind of like a difference in your, writing uh process between something creator owned and some and an already established character like yeah absolutely i mean the established stuff i feel like part of my job is to be carrying that i'm carrying that legacy along for the ride and Mm -hmm. if i'm making changes to it i have to justify it in in the form of the story that we're telling you know with a creator owned book i've got a more open 
ability to say it's going to go this way and I'm the final, you know, sort of deciding factor mm-hmm. on that in, in a much easier way. Whereas with a, you know, uh, something uh, work for hire, you're convincing the powers that be, the editor or whoever, you know, this is the right direction to take for these reasons. And it's obviously, it, it's very um, empowering when they agree with you wholeheartedly and they say, tell that story exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. Other times they come back with valuable feedback and say, hey, we were thinking this or we need this. And part of your job is to be able to problem solve and to either convince them to go another way or to incorporate those elements into the final thing without losing your voice, you know? Right. So then, uh, do those, do those kind of mindsets, uh, meet in the, meet in the middle when you're doing something like, uh, like Avengers, no surrender, where you're kind of, uh, creating a new character to retcon the history of, uh, <laughs> of other characters. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of fun that was really kind of, it's a bit addictive. The first time I made something in the Marvel universe that wasn't there before. And like the day after, you know, an issue comes out and it's on the Marvel wiki and people are talking about it and you're like, whether or not this character becomes a big deal or super popular later, we made something, we made something new that wasn't there before. And that's the Marvel universe has always been expanding and always been growing and changing. And our ability to add new pieces to it is what keeps it vibrant. And so I love using old continuity. I love plugging in old bits and pieces together, but there is something viscerally exciting about just making something out of whole cloth and saying, I think, I think we need this, you know? Yeah. Well, um, one of the, one of the other books that's been, uh, has been my favorite that, that you've been writing, uh, Lately, that like from the first issue on, I uh, I went. This is such a an interesting concept. I'm just I'm all I'm on board for the ride, and and every issue has gotten uh is has gotten better as far as just keeping me uh, engaged and gross is uh Black Panther and the Agents of Wakanda. Oh, thank you. Uh, this it, it, you're welcome. It's just it's such a great kind of concept, and it was one of those things where I you know I read um. I definitely read uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' um, Black Panther run, and I love mm. the, the uh, intergalactic uh, Kingdom of Wakanda storyline and everything like that. And then reading uh, uh, Jason Aaron's uh, Avengers, where you got, you know, um, T'Challa is the, the chairman of the Avengers now. And then just like this, uh, this storyline is also so engaging because it's just like at all those things that, uh, all those ways that people perceive T'Challa as both the king and the leader of the Avengers, he's still an adventurer and a hero, right? And even when he does, even when like some, especially in the, like the last uh, the last issue when you had like Okoye Okoye just kind of calling him out on you know, <laughs> kind of spreading himself so thin, yeah. Still kind of uh, still really enjoy the fact that he's like that. As much as this persona of who he is is out there. He still, when it gets down in the, uh, gets down with the troops and go out there on the missions. So, where did kind of the idea for uh, this this take come from? Like, why? Uh, like, where did you see um, having you know uh, Black Panther have his own kind of strike team composed of uh, composed of these other uh, Marvel characters? Well, Jason came up with that concept. So the agents of Wakanda was a thing that he generated within the Avengers monthly book. 
as sort of like an answer to, you know, S.H.I.E.L.D. no longer being around, this is going to be the Avengers answer to the kind of espionage and information gathering kind of thing. And then um, Will Moss, uh, the editor who who manages a bunch of different series for Marvel, reached out to me and said, we're looking at doing an Agents of Wakanda book on its own. How do we take this concept and and expand it out to make it a, a full kind of experience? And so I took this idea. I said, well, they're kind of espionage, but they, they feel like the strike team that pops in real quick and does stuff that needs to get done that the Avengers wouldn't necessarily right. do. And so my idea became this almost like Mission Impossible meets Jack Kirby kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I wanted it to be very fast. I wanted it to have a lot of momentum. And the reason why is um, when I was a kid and I was reading Marvel Comics, it was rare for a story to run more than a couple parts. Most of the time there's subplots that are running through the monthly books, but on an actual immediate a plot conflict, most of it's pretty quick. And there was something very uh, peppy about that. It felt like it was a constant changing, you know, world. And so I've never done that in a book before. So that's what I pitched them. I said, instead of writing for the trade and trying to do six issue arcs or whatever, I want to do these two issue peppy kind of missions. And because it's Mission Impossible style, we can sweep characters into the plot and out of the plot as needed for each mission. But when a character shows up again, their subplots will move forward. Things will become, you'll see a larger pattern over this, the longer span of the series. But every two issues, you're going to get an adrenaline hit, you know, of stuff. And, and thankfully, you know, Will and, and Tom really liked that as an idea. And that's what we've been kind of roaring forward with. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, that keeps me coming back uh, to the book is the immediacy of it. Yeah. Is that it's just, you know, it's it's there. Uh, I kind of I know what I'm getting into, even though this even though I don't know where the story is going. But I like the fact. Well, one, I like the fact that I don't know. I like the fact that they're that kind of anything can happen and anyone can show up. Like I was not expect, like, you know, I I knew, I knew Deadpool was coming. I just didn't know like kind of what, what would happen. And the live wires and all the weirdness. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to put, I love taking these old bits of stuff that's almost been like mothballed in the Marvel universe and pull it back out and go, look at that crazy thing. Well, how do we plug that in and and light it up again? Um, I know that it's like, it's a challenge for me because with essentially 40 pages, because two 20 page issues per each mm-hmm. of these kind of missions, there isn't a lot of page count compared to what people are used to with the more decompressed kind of storytelling. So it's a challenge for me to try and use older and more modern kind of storytelling techniques in tandem and see what I can do with it. You know, that's what it's a writing challenge and it's a, it's an exciting thing to be constantly generating these new weird ideas and still have characterization kind of flowing underneath it. So something like, wait a minute, T'Challa's in his own book and he's in the Avengers and he's, he's a, a you know, diplomat on the, the Council of Worlds and all this stuff for Asgard. How does he do this all at once? And so I say, well, he is because he's an appearing in all these places. Right. So that we have to sort of justify, backfill justify that. And so we justify that with his obsessive need and his inability to kind of give up control to other people and, Mm -hmm. and that, you know, very leader like quality, uh, where someone doesn't want to let go of the reins that they have a hard time 
you know, uh, delegating that authority. And so in a way, it's a way for us to analyze parts of Black Panther, even as all these other crazy things are happening all around him. Yeah. And I thought it was handled uh, perfectly again by having Okoya just call him out on it, just to say, you know what, you're, you know, all of these people, like your people need you. Right. And you're spreading yourself too thin. You're, you're, you're doing too much. And that's, uh, and that's again, one of the reasons why I, I like the book so much is that again, because the, because of the, the pacing of it, like you don't have time to, to ha- kind of have that, you know, to have, to not have that conversation that it makes, right. the, it, it, it makes the story better to just have that conversation. Well, and it that. makes sense that they would be the people to have it, you know, yeah. in some, in some ways, like I'm, I'm justifying things that are happening in, you know, Jason's story. I mean, he, he, in all these other places that the Black Panther is, I'm sort of saying, isn't this too much? Well, maybe it is. Well, let's talk about that. You know, that's kind of the, the, if that's the obvious question, then that's a question we need to answer, you know? Yeah. And it's it's one of those things where, uh, because I remember when, you know, Wolverine was in everybody's book and, and you, and, it was never it. I think it was kind of addressed jokingly, but no one ever really kind of sure. said, hey, you know what? You know, maybe slow down a little bit. One of the things I love about this, you know, two parter with five, six when Deadpool, because Black Panther and Deadpool have this history, um, it's that much easier to justify him going, you know, going off and, and obsessively needing to try and stop Wade because he's seen how dangerous Wade can be and how unhinged and difficult he is to deal with. And so he can't let someone else do that. So even as you think, well, Okoye is having this conversation. Now's the time when he can let go of the reins. And it's like, right. no, Deadpool pushes all of his buttons. <laughs> he's got to go get him, you know? And that's, um, that was a really fun little bit of interplay and writing Deadpool is a scream. Like, um, I've wanted to for quite some time. One of my first books that I uh, had come out, that was sort of my breakout book, was back in 2010. I launched a book at Image called Skull Kickers, and it's mm-hmm. um, it's an action comedy sword and sorcery book. And we had a lot of this tongue in cheek kind of violence that drove a lot of the the book, and it was really fun to write. And I don't get a chance to do that very much. And Deadpool like ticks all those boxes all over again, where I just get to like do. And what's great about him is he's, you can be violent to him because of the healing factor. (laughs) You can just do terrible, terrible things to him and you don't feel bad because he's just going to get back up and make a stupid comment about it, you know? Right. And his self-awareness just kind of takes, you know, yeah. This kind of takes the, the, the bite out of a, a lot of it anyway, because it's like you it's like he's so self-aware. He, he it's all like he knows yep. what what you're what you're about to do to him. Exactly. Exactly. There's a real joy to that as well. And I love the weird little bits of problem solving where he's he's, you know, acting very um, mundane about these things that are happening to him, whether it's getting hit by a truck and smashed right. cactus pile or you know, him with his limbs not functioning because he got hit with a tranquilizer and he's broken bones all over. Like <laughs> that stuff's really funny to write. Right. And, you know, you, you hope that the, in this case, Scott Eaton, but whoever the artist is that whatever you put in those script pages, that they get excited to draw them because that's right. essentially the script is like a, like a letter between the artist and the editor and, and you where you're, you're building excitement you're you're trying to open up their imagination to what this could be you know 
No, absolutely. And one of the things I, I, I didn't get to earlier, because I, I usually like to start with, but like, what was your, um, what was your comics journey? Like, where did you, like, when did you want to decide you wanted to write comics and kind of how did you uh, kind of say, you know what, uh, how did you, well, I, I hate to, hate it to sound cliche. It's like, how did you get your foot in the door? No, no, I but get it. But yeah, but it is kind of more like, like, where did, where, like, where your, where your journey started and sure. how you, you. So. Um, I never anticipated working in comics growing up. I read comics. I loved comics, loved the superhero stuff. There was a really intensive series of probably around six to seven years where I was collecting superhero stuff obsessively. My brother and I both, mostly Marvel. Um, and it was a real high time. It was the 80s, and, and it was like all these books were just humming at this incredible frequency. And yeah, we so couldn't many... get enough of it. Yeah, so many lenticular covers. And, yeah. Well, no, this yeah. lenticular stuff is nineties. That's like oh yeah, like yeah, that was late eighties, early nineties, eighties. This is like absolutely rock solid kind of stuff coming from the X Men and from Amazing oh. Spider Man and um, Fantastic Four and the Avengers, and it was just like such a killer time to be reading the books. You know, Secret Wars, the original yeah. one. I even like Secret Wars too. In retrospect, it doesn't hold up very well, but I loved those tie in books because they seemed so insane um mm -hmm. and it felt like the characters were constantly growing and changing uh, my brother and i love the official handbook of the marvel universe because keep in mind this is before trade paperbacks or the kind of digital archives we have now we couldn't afford to read those older issues so people right. would hint about their origin or they would hint about old things that had happened and they would have the little caption that would say see issue you know whatever but we couldn't even afford to get a bunch of those. And so you just, it was almost like myth. Like people would talk about things that happened back in the day, but you didn't have a complete picture of it. Mm -hmm. But with the handbook, of the Marvel universe, it was this encyclopedia style profiles that would tell you exactly what happened here, here, here. And so it, it made it feel like it all made sense. And it felt like it was all super wonderfully interconnected and even though I'm sure on some conscious level, I knew that you had hundreds of writers and artists that were contributing to these and that it wasn't organized, it felt organized. And so it felt like it mattered to me. Right. Um, and that meant a lot, you know, and it's one of the reasons why I'm so the journey of creating stuff in the Marvel Universe is so surreal to me because I remember how cool that was to me as a kid. And I, you know, hope something that that i've contributed to has that kind of excitement for someone else um so i grew up reading a lot of superhero stuff and then kind of fell out of the as we moved into the 90s particularly the sort of moving into the mid 90s i lost my excitement for a lot of the superhero stuff i would end up shifting over to a lot of manga and this is before kind of the main streaming of the manga stuff uh -huh. the earliest manga stuff i read were literally japanese volumes and the earliest versions of the internet where on um digital bulletin boards there were people translating the stories so you download the script print it off on your dot matrix printer <laughs> and look at the text while you looked at the book and then slowly but surely read your way through it. Right. And manga to me blew my mind because the sheer depth and variety of books, right? So yeah. they don't just have, you know, adventure stories. They have 
historical stories or they have sports manga or romantic comedy or, Mm -hmm. you know, everything, every genre was deeply represented and the storytelling was really exciting. And not every book was great, but it just, it felt so fresh to me. It felt so different. Mm -hmm. Um, And the best, one of the things that was so exciting about it was it's like, decades worth of the best material was there waiting to be uncovered, you know? Right. You know, it's like, imagine if you started reading the Marvel universe now and you'd never read the dark Phoenix saga and you'd never read Watchmen and you'd never read born again, you know, Mm -hmm. and you're literally reading them back to back to back to back. And you're like, every superhero comic is brilliant. You know, (laughs) it's like, sure, there's crappy ones, but you're only seeing the top notch stuff. So if the first time you see a manga is like something like Akira, you know, or I'm reading some Mm -hmm. of these, you know, absolutely brilliant, uh, creators, I'm just getting the best of the best, like mainlined right into my face, and I can't uh, get enough of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like it's not like you're you're particularly turning your back on the thing that you love. No, it's just I'm still reading dis- comics. I right, just you're discovering a whole new exactly. thing opened up to me. And what was amazing was realizing, oh, this stuff's really cool. I really like it. And the the like I said, the depth and breadth of it was what really kind of fascinated me. And then my comic reading kind of evolves again. So um, as the internet starts to really take hold, I notice that there's a whole group of um, people that are making comics online. Most of them are doing them like Saturday morning or so like, like newspaper style strips. Mm -hmm. So they're doing these, you know, gag strips, four panel, six panel kind of things, but they're putting them online and they're building an audience. And one of the things I'd never understood, I didn't know how publishing worked. I didn't know how to release material. I didn't know how to meet, you know, the people that make this stuff. And the internet of course blew that all apart. Your, your ability to suddenly communicate with other people and find commonalities and all that stuff. And I couldn't have never anticipated that. So I went to school for animation because it's something else that I have a lot of passion for. Yeah. And I started working in the animation industry, but in the evening, you know, particularly when you're starting off in an industry like animation, you're not going to be a decision maker unless you're an independent filmmaker, you're going to be, you know, working on other people's productions on their schedules, a very small part of a big thing. Yeah. Your staff guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but I didn't have any, anywhere to flex my kind of creative muscles and make my own stuff. And I animating my own stuff would take forever, but a comic seemed very doable, you know? So I started making my own comic stuff in the evenings and I didn't have any publishing background. I'd never been to a convention. I just started putting stuff online because I could see a path to do that. That made sense to me, you know? Yeah. And so the, the web comic kind of surge happened guys like, um, Scott Kurtz, who did a a comic strip called player versus player, the penny arcade Mm -hmm. guys, um, this thing called keen spot, all these different kind of web comic things started up and I could see, a way to to make my own stuff and that was where i kind of the bug bit me that was like oh i was getting this instant feedback i was starting to interact with people and kind of find a community of creators who were exuberant and excited and figuring this stuff out as i was you know mm-hmm. and Absolutely. so that that was really a huge um surge for me in terms of my enthusiasm to create I would move on. I would keep doing animation production. I would get into teaching. Eventually, I would go in at the Udon studio, and that's like an illustration and commercial art studio that also publishes books. 
And I learned a ton about the industry. I learned about conventions and I learned about publishing and I learned about pre-press and, and deadlines and, you know, how to format things properly and how to, you know, build a budget and a schedule, all this really boring stuff that no one would have taught me, you know, right? but has served me incredibly well on a, on a business level. Now I got my hand into lettering and coloring and drawing and editorial. So just sort of seeing every part of a production pipeline. And, um, so that, but the projects that excited me the most were always the ones where we had our hand in storytelling. You know, we would do cool mm-hmm. illustrations or we would do stuff, but a lot of times you're getting your orders from other people. It's similar to animation. You're right. someone else's hands, you know. But the projects that I love the most were the ones where they asked us to engage with story ideas or to come up with things. And I realized more and more that's where my passion was, was for the telling of the story, for the engagement of the story. And I wanted to have a big hand in that. And writing was the most direct way to do it. And so I started writing my own stuff and then eventually got, uh, long story short, published some stories in anthologies, got on the radar with Image, and then did Skull Kickers. And that kind of transformed, even if people knew who I was, and there weren't very many who did, because I was Mm -hmm. sort of working behind the scenes at Udon rather than out in front. But that really changed people's perception because they were like, oh, this guy writes. Oh, this is fun. Oh, it's consistent. It keeps coming out and it's good and, you know, whatever. And that kind of once I I got that kind of changed everything because now I could show people the kinds of stories I wanted to read and the kind of stuff that I thought was entertaining and slowly but surely build up a readership that also found that stuff engaging and then eventually convince publishers you know, they could pay me to to do the same thing for them. Yeah, it's definitely uh, sounds like one of those things where, you know, you're you become the most passionate about uh, executing your vision of something mm-hmm. rather than uh, well, and I, and I didn't say rather than, but it's like you can become passionate about, um, you know, executing uh, a collective vision of other people. Absolutely. But, you, but you're going to get but you'll be more. Uh, passionate and personally engaged when you're executing your own vision. Yeah. And it's just been, you know, the, the key is our job is to communicate, you know, to communicate and to entertain. Right. And so what I learned when I was working with all these different clients and going to these conventions was how to communicate ideas, whether that was visually or storytelling wise to our clients to convince them we were the right studio for the job. We were the right people or convince an artist. This is the path we need to take to complete this project with the least amount of hassles, you know? Right. And so my job now essentially is convincing editors. I'm the problem solver that can help you with this project. I either have a cool project I want you to publish, or you have a cool property I want to contribute to. I'm the right person for the job. I will deliver on it. It'll be fun. It'll sell well, you know, all, all those things that you want, I can help do for you and that sounds weird to say it out loud that way but that's essentially what you're doing right like people hire you because they think that you are the solution to their problem they don't Mm -hmm. hire you because you're going to be a pain in the ass you know what i mean if you are then you better be that much more (laughs) skilled (laughs) that they're going to put up with it right exactly so you know what i want to be is kind of the best of all worlds where i'll deliver the goods it is quality but also I've been on the other side of the table. I've been an editor. I've dealt with publishing deadlines and artist schedules and stuff. 
So I know what they need in order to make a project function. Mm-hmm. And so I want to make that run as smoothly as possible. Yeah. So I mean, you, you, you learn to pitch other things and then eventually you learn to pitch yourself. Yeah. Because that's what really doing. what it is. You know, one of the best compliments I got, I was at New York comic con this year and one of my editors from Marvel comes around and she's there with um, a couple of the assistant editors and the assistant editors praised me for how little chasing around they had to do that. Mm -hmm. I always have my reference really well organized that I, that I'm on top of my solicits that I'm following up with them before they have to ask for something. And as much as you think, well, yeah, that should be basic. It's email, it's, you know, schedule, it's deadline. A lot of people fall behind on that stuff or they're not paying attention. They're just focused Mm hundred percent on the script. And those assistant editors spend an inordinate amount of time doing that that work that that chasing and that organizing and it takes up a lot of their time so if on my projects they don't have to do that they can be better served elsewhere well who do they want to work with again you know right and not only that assistant editors become editors yeah and now who do they want to call you know like it's a very straightforward kind of thing that's very true i mean so do i mean do you think you're um that being an instructor, being an educator kind of uh, gives you that, like kind of gave you that discipline or helps you with that. I think it's it's a part and parcel of communication, you know, and it's about being organized, right? When you work with students and you particularly are teaching the basics and that's what I'm doing essentially, you know, year after year, you have to get very good at it. You have to get very good at at communicating it, at recognizing it, at critiquing it over and over and over again and you see patterns of the pitfalls that people make in terms of their execution so you just learn not to make those mistakes or to be able to see them happening that much faster you know and so for me it's always been about that communication and being like okay i gotta get out in front of this okay i gotta make it clear what what i need and so that they know so we can figure this stuff out ahead of time you know yeah. Because that's what I would want for my students. Because that's what I would want when I work with an artist. Because that's what I would want when, you know. And and so much of this, when I talk about communication, I'm talking about empathy. Your ability to imagine other people's situations, right? Mm-hmm. If you're the artist, what do you need in order to get a project done? And what do you need in order to be excited about a project? Instead of just thinking about my own, hey, I got to finish a script, do the deadline, pay me. I'm also trying to think about what is the clearest way that I can get this artist so pumped that they want to draw this, that they're excited to work with me, that, that the idea that I have will come to the page as strongly as possible, you know? Yeah. And I, 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 a lot of what you're saying is what I see on like, and just uh, to listeners, when you go, if you go to uh uh, he has a an extensive list of tutorials. Yeah, uh, that will that kind of list like everything from like how to break into comics, how to find an artist, like brainstorming, like coloring, critique, uh, all those things, and just everything that that you're that we're talking about. I think you're, you 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 put in that, and then just it. My question on that is like, is it because you kind of like your desire to communicate is what uh, prompted you to just say, Hey, you know what, let me just put it out there. What, you know, just kind of see and, and, and give that knowledge to other people. 
it was sort of it was twofold, right? So first off, I would get asked early on. I got asked, you know, well, how did you get? How did you pitch a comic to Image, or how do you write a comic? Because that doesn't tend to be front facing. You know, you're only seeing the end result. You're seeing the final lettered, colored pages. So what? How much or how little information does that artist have? at the start and how do you work with them? And, and you just get asked these questions by so many people so many times. And what I realized was I can give you really pithy answers on Twitter at the time, like 140 characters or whatever. Right. And I can just say, work hard and stay organized. And you know, it's <laughs> not untrue, but it's also not a very complete or under, you know, it doesn't go deep enough to really give you a sense of what's involved or I'm going to be rewriting and rewriting that explanation a ludicrous number of times. So if right. I'm going to do it, I might as well do it well once. <laughs> and then I literally, when someone says, how'd you break into comics? I lit- cut and paste a link to my website. <laughs> so it's sort of a time saver, but it's also the actual information. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's like you're, you're, you're answering the question, but at the same time you're saving yourself from having to yeah, constantly answer but the question. Because the reality is I want to help people because I right. wished I had had some of this information when I was starting out. And so I don't want to ignore them. And I think that's partially the teaching thing and just partially, you know, empathy, like, man, when I was starting out, I'd ask people to read stuff or check things over or tell me if I was crazy, is this the right way to do it? Mm-hmm. And most of the time people wouldn't respond or the, and it's not because I think they're malicious. I think they're, they're busy. And I think they've said it a hundred times and they don't want to say it anymore, you know, right. if at all. And so I'm like, I want to be responsive and I want to help people so they don't make the same mistakes I've made and stuff like that. This seems like the most expedient way to do that. And I did a couple of these articles and they went over really well and they started to get shared around and I hadn't anticipated it would, I mean, on a minor level go viral, but people, you know, were saying this is a really good explanation or this is very simple and clear. And then editors would say to me, Hey, your pitching article on how to put together a pitch is just dead on. Like, that's exactly Mm -hmm. what I want to see. I point people to it all the time. And I was like, Oh, it's very, I, I started to get work because of it, because literally an editor would go, I've been pointing people towards your website for how to pitch. And I've never asked you to pitch me. Right. They're like, I want you to pitch me. And I was like, oh, man, you know, that's not why I did it. <laughs> but what a cool, you know, side benefit, I yeah. guess, um, because they felt like, well, this guy knows what he's talking about. And it's not that I didn't. It's just part of it is codifying well, what have I learned? What is the clearest way to go about explaining this? What is the best way, you know, simplest source uh, path between two points or whatever? And it's not to say there's only one way of doing it because there's certainly not. But if I can take some of the commonalities I've seen and kind of put them together and go, this is what works for me. Hopefully you find that useful. It's a time saver and it's also been really helpful. It's been really inspiring to hear from people uh, who started their careers and said, you know, early on those articles were very helpful to them or helped teach them things about the industry they didn't know before. Um, Mm -hmm. it doesn't always, it's a little surreal, you know, at times, but now that I've been doing this for a while, it's, uh, you know, my wife and I will finish up a convention and at the end of the show, I've got a stack of indie lost self-published comics that people are bringing up to me because as a gift to thank me for you know teaching them even though i wasn't right there over their shoulder you know right 
And at first I was a little taken aback. I was like, oh my God, this is weird. And then it just sort of becomes, that's the way it is. Like we leave a show with, you know, a dozen little indie books or in some cases stuff from dark horse or image or wherever. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, Oh, that's okay. That's very cool. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Um, I, and as a writer, my, my, my next question is again, is is probably a little bit of a, a process thing. Like where do you, um, I guess how, like we, you, you write so many different stories and so many different types of stories. Like, when you're sit when you're sitting down, like kind of what is your, well, like, you just you, you don't have to like go like into completely de- deep complete detail, but like kind of what is your your process for sitting down? Do you just kind of close the door and shut out the world and say I'm going to write for like the next four or five hours and <laughs> no one bother me, or do you or does life have to intervene? I wish it was. I wish I could sequester myself away. It tends to be bursts, you know. Um, I'm the good thing is, is that there are what we call pants writers. They write by the seat of their pants mm-hmm. and there are structure writers and I'm far more of a structure writer. So before I sit down to do the, the script, I've already broken down the story. I know what the, however many issues it's going to be, four issues, three issues, two, six, whatever. I know in some cases, scene by scene, what it's going to be. And I've already started to kind of imagine in my head how these things fit together. Now, the process of writing still involves discovery. The minute you put it on the page, you realize, oh, this scene's a little longer than I thought. Oh, this would work better if we teased out more dialogue. You know what I mean? And so the plan is not set in stone. I'll build the issue out and go, okay, in 20 pages, three pages here and six pages here and whatever. And the execution of it, sometimes flexes around and I go, okay, this scene ran long. So we got to, you know, nip and tuck here and make this work. Um, but because I had the plan, it's okay to revise the plan. But if I didn't have the plan, I would feel really lost. I would feel really, you know, but what that also means is if I write a few pages and then I get an important phone call, I got to jump on, or I got to run some errands or I got to answer a bunch of emails. I can sort of tilt back towards the outline, look at the script I've already written and get myself back into the headspace faster Mm -hmm. because I don't, again, I'm not just trying to grope around in the dark and figure out what it is. I know what it is. I just need to execute on it as strongly as possible. Right. So it is like a structure thing. You have an outline that you work off of. And, And I'll gather as much of that reference material as I can. So I've written on planes. I've written in hotel rooms around the world. Mm-hmm. I try and bring all that material with me. So, you know, whatever it takes to get myself in that headspace. If I'm going to write Conan, then I'm going to either reread the scripts previous to this one in the story I'm writing. Plus, I'll probably read some Roy Thomas issues I really like and just kind of get back into the the, the mm-hmm. zone with it and then just turn in and go, okay, now I'm going to get, you know, in the next three hours, we're going to try and get this much done. Hopefully the flight won't be bumpy or, you know, like whatever. Gotcha. Uh, um, and it doesn't always work the way you, you want. Like sometimes you're more productive or less productive than you hope, but you sort of try not to let that internal voice freak you out too much and, and know that on the whole you will win the fight. You know, I think the biggest difference for me, and this is, this was a really hard thing for me to recognize for quite a while. People ask me, this is a DJ writer's block do you ever feel like you suck or whatever? And the answer is yes. And yes, of course Mm -hmm. the difference is, is that once you've completed enough 
stuff, enough creative projects. You've gone through whatever you want to call it, dark night of the soul, whatever they call that. <laughs> Those moments where you feel like you're a failure and you're useless and you're terrible. Right. And you've climbed out of that pit enough times that you know you're at the bottom, but you will climb out again. Whereas right. I think in the earliest part of your creative career, you haven't climbed out. So you're like, well, I guess I'm garbage. And you can't <laughs> imagine not being garbage, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I now, when I hit that point, I go, oh, we're at this part of the process, you know, like, like yeah. rather than me being like, well, I'm a failure. I, I literally get angry, like, oh, geez, this is the part where I feel like I'm a failure. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, it's, but, it's but a... I know I've done it how many times I've written, oh, God, I don't know, like 250 single issues or something. So this is just the part where I suck and I got to un unsuck and, and make it work. And so you because I have enough evidence that it will happen that mm -hmm. keeps me going in a way that I think early on people don't have that because they just don't have evidence of it. Right. And they, sometimes they give up for good because they go, well, if I was a real writer slash artist slash musician slash whatever, I wouldn't feel this way. I would just be talented and everything would, would happen. And you're yeah. like, no, the difference is <laughs> I'm just stubbornly going to keep, you know, tearing at it. Yeah. So you, you, in essence, you, you, you know, you start in the hole, but you, you write enough to where you recognize the way out of it. Yeah. And, and that, you... and that the way out of it is always continuing to push and try right. and to go back and to revise or to reread and, and figure out why you've got that bad feeling in the fit of your stomach and you can't get to the next scene. Like there's something fundamentally wrong here and you need to solve it before you move forward. And that is a matter of, it sounds weird to say practice because it's a creative art, but, mm -hmm. but it is practice. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think it is that different from any other trade. You're going to practice and get better. It, I break down stories faster now than I did at the start. Mm -hmm. I write scripts generally faster now than I did at the start. You know, there's always exceptions. Right. Um, I'm also confident when I can see a way out faster. Like I can solve problems better because I've solved so many of them, you know? Mm -hmm. So it is a practice. It is a trade in that regard. And it does get easier, you know? That doesn't mean that I don't have those moments or frustrations. Mm -hmm. But it just means that I know to keep tearing at it and you get those moments where you, the pure kind of bliss of of where you sprint and you suddenly knock out a bunch of pages that flowed really well and they sound the way you want them to sound and you're really pumped for it and you relish those you relish those times when it when it came easy and it felt great but you don't that's not the only way you're going to work you know right yeah okay so um, this is kind of my like my my next to to last question because I I uh, want to get to like my final question was usually sure. about, like what what you would love to write is that um is there anything like that you want to like plug do you have any uh like creator owned uh, stuff coming out or a new uh, be besides um the taking over Conan and I know there's right. a, an, yeah a, I'm doing so I'm doing Conan the Barbarian monthly starting in February. And then I've got a Dungeons Dragons miniseries coming out now called Infernal Tides. And so it feels amazing to have two of the biggest properties in sword and sorcery kind of in my right and left hand at the same time and try and make them feel distinct from each other 
and mm-hmm. and worthy in their own right. You know what I mean? While both of them are things I deeply love about, you know, genre fiction. Um, I've got Black Panther and the Agents of Wakanda that I'm doing. I've got another Marvel project that's going to be announced. Um, I don't know when. I think in a few, maybe like in a month, uh, that we've just started to to tear into. Um, but beyond that commercial stuff, I've uh, Max Dunbar and I are back for a second season, as they call it, of Stone Star. So we're going to be doing another story, moving that world forward in some really fun ways. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed working with Max. He's such an amazing collaborator and he's a phenomenal, uh, I, I loathe to use the word talent cause that makes it sound easy. He mm-hmm. is a skilled, skilled artist who right. does not, uh, hold back in terms of his awesome design sense. Mm-hmm. And he is a designer. I think it's one of the things I love about working with him. He doesn't just want to draw a page. If they're, we're in a location or there's some new thing, he wants to design it and understand it. And that makes his work feel so consistent and so cool. Uh, and it becomes addictive because I just want to come up with new crazy things for him to design. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like a, a, he, he wants to, to build the world. Yeah. And so something like stone star where we don't have anyone, there's no way, not even there's no limits. You know, I can say, mm-hmm. Hey, I want a cool group of bad guys. What do you feel like drawing? You want to draw robots or monsters or mm-hmm. weird, you know, chunky funky like whatever makes you happy i want you to draw that and i will write to it you know and that's something really fun about the creator owned space where where you don't feel like you're there's no compromises in that sense you just sort of like this would be cool well if we're having fun hopefully readers are going to have you know as much fun reading it too right and i would i would be honored if i could have you back to talk about uh uh, Stone Star when it comes back and you know, yeah, the other sure. product. Uh, well, that's what's been so, you know, that I love doing creator own stuff. I love doing the commercial writing. I don't feel like it has to be one or the other. You know what I right. mean? The Marvel stuff is, I'm very proud of the work I've been able to do and the things I get asked to do consistently because uh, of my enthusiasm and, and, you know, the storytelling and the artists, all of it is such a joy to be a part of. And the same is true of a lot of the other commercial stuff I've done, whether that's Dungeons and Dragons or Samurai Jack or, or, you know, Mm -hmm. all these street fighter, all these different things that I was obsessed with, you know, when I was younger and now I get to contribute something fun to it. Um, that is a pure joy, but I don't want that to be the sum total of what I put out into the world, you know? Right. And, and on that same note, I mean, I'm glad you, uh, glad you said that because you've had a chance to write so many uh, characters and things that you love. Like my, my last question is, 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 um, okay. If you were, like, if you just had an, an, an idea for a character you've never written before mm-hmm. and you had the opportunity to, to pitch it and you don't have to tell me like the, the, the whole story. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to put sure. I'm not going to tell just, you the pitch. Right. Right. Exactly. Just so, kinda... I mean, I've written the characters briefly, like, you know, a handful of lines of dialogue, but both uh, Dr. Strange and Spider-Man are near and dear to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Strange was like, man, he's a D and D character and he's a superhero. Like he's right. the best guy. <laughs> like I love D and D. Um, and you know, Spider-Man was my hero growing up. I collected that series, uh, amazing Spider-Man obsessively when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be an absolute dream to even write one issue of amazing Spider-Man. I've written Spider-Man briefly in a couple things, but 
not him as the central character focal point, you know? Okay. And then even on those lines, like would there, I mean, just, uh, just to kind of throw this a little bit of a curveball. Mm -hmm. If you, if you ever had an idea for like a DC comics character, like if you had the opportunity to write a DC character. Yeah. So the, the, I really like, um, I really like the duality and strangeness of Harley Quinn. I think she's Mm -hmm. a ton of fun. I wrote her briefly. I did a legends of the dark Knight story that I'm very, very proud of. Um, it was a two part story and she's central to it, but I would have, I would love to dig deeper into her stuff because I think she's very cool. Um, I really like Batgirl as well. I, 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 Batman's amazing, obviously, but Mm -hmm. I find something really fascinating about someone like Barbara who is a little more, doesn't have the resources that bruce does you know what i mean right that's a little more under the gun and and having to problem solve on a smaller scale i find that really um endearing and i find her tenacity to be very enjoyable so those are two characters that come to mind i really like the suicide squad as a concept i i find the uh the crazy mission style stuff is obviously something i like and then on top of that you've got this the the tension that's created by the very organization that is forcing them out into the field. Yeah, I mean, to speaking of under the gun, like they are literally they right. Are literally, so right. I, that's one of the things I find really engaging about them is that the morality play of it, where they're like, "You're going to do what we say for the betterment of humanity, whether you like it or not," and they're simultaneously trying to get take advantage of the situation or find their way out of it and get right. revenge. And I find that that just creates so much delicious tension right from the get-go yeah absolutely well uh jim zub thank you so much uh for for talking to me tonight my pleasure uh, and uh if you wanted anyone to to follow you on social media uh where could where can they find you well the easiest place is just uh jimzub.com so that is a hub for everything so it's got all my social media links on there it's got all my tutorials interviews and links to book order stuff and convention appearances, just everything is accessible through there. Um, I'm on Twitter. That's probably my most kind of interactive social media. It's just at Jim Zub. And um, yeah, I love talking comics and games and, and D and D stuff all the time. Okay. Awesome. Um, um, I noticed on your website, you don't have any uh, uh, appearances confirmed for, for 2020 yet so i'm just i'm gonna put a little bit of a bug in your ear just because it's the closest sure. con, it's the closest con to me but i don't know if you've ever been to uh dragon con in atlanta so the tough thing about dragon con it's almost always the same weekend as fan expo canada yeah and so that's my hometown show here and it's the biggest show in canada and mm-hmm. so i do extremely well and i get to see so many regulars year after year so it's really tough for me to tear myself away from it i've done it but it's been a long long time since i haven't been at fan expo so if they're ever on separate weekends i would love to do dragon con i did it a couple times when i was at the udon studio and we had a ton of fun that's when we were doing a lot of artwork for the white wolf role-playing game studio and they were based in atlanta so we would go down there and party hard with the white wolf people Awesome. Well, again, uh, thank you so much for being on the show, and I would love to have you back uh, sometime uh, whenever you uh, 
at, at this point now I'm just rambling. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. Thanks, man. I really, I, honestly, I deeply appreciate, um, you know, your enthusiasm for the stories. I'm so glad that you're enjoying what I'm putting out there. Uh, I'm so pumped for Conan and all the other stuff coming up in 2020. Yeah, same here. Uh, uh, thank you so much. Once again, I want to thank Jim Zub for being on Superpowered Fancast this week. You can find Jim Zub on uh, Twitter at Jim Zub. Uh, you can also go to his website, uh, jimzub.com, for everything about his upcoming convention appearances, his bio, what he's currently working on, and more. You can always follow Superpowered Fancast and find us online. And our website is www.superpoweredfancast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at superpoweredfan. And feel free to email me at superpoweredfancast at gmail.com. I do respond. And I would love to hear what you think of the show, uh, what you like, what you don't like, what you think we should improve, what you think I can change, what you like about it, what you'd like to hear more of. And you can always do that by... Uh, leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Uh, until next time, this is Darren from Superpowered Fancast signing off.